Hello, I'm Daniel Simpson, the host of Ancient Futures. And if you're hearing this, you're listening to a preview of an archived podcast. For the full conversation, go to ancientfutures.substack.com. The link is in the show notes and become a paid subscriber. Or you can also sign up for a free seven day trial with no obligation. If you already subscribe, however, you have access to everything via the website um, where you can go to your account page to set up a feed to your favourite podcast app. Just follow the instructions at ancientfutures.substack.com forward slash account. Now, everything is free at the time of release, so it's also possible to subscribe without any charge to get the latest episodes direct to your inbox, along with other interviews and things that I write. All of that does take time to produce, though, so while it's a labour of love, subscriber donations do help make it sustainable. But if you're not in a position to pay, just send me a message and we'll work something out. For now, on with the preview. Hello and welcome to Ancient Futures, in which we turn things upside down and inside out. Um, today... I'm answering the questions and uh, in the uh, interviewing seat is Vikram Jit Singh um, who has been uh, like me uh, exploring yoga as a practitioner and uh, a student of history and philosophy for many years now and uh, we are very happy to come together and uh, you know, share our two different perspectives on what we've been engaging with um, in the hope, I suppose, of, of seeding more conversation. And so I, I think we both see this uh, exchange that uh, I'm going to share with you now as the, uh, the first step <laughs> to a much broader conversation that uh, we hope will ripple out from here. Um, so without further ado, I will uh, sit back and uh, hand over to Vikramjeet Singh. Okay, thank you so much, Daniel, taking out this time to speak with me. I uh, I really appreciate this. Uh, and just to give some context, uh, you know, I've obviously read your book, The Truth mm -hmm. of Yoga, and I think you said that in the podcast. That's a that's a lofty title to put you <laughs> behind. Um, and I'm sure a few people have have questioned the truth in some way or the other. Uh, and I'm just coming out from a, a course that I did with uh, on the Embodied uh, Philosophy platform yes. on. Uh, I believe it's called yoga from the past to the present and the future. I'm paraphrasing, but mm. very, uh, very enlightening, enriching, very informative course. You know, had some questions that came up for me during the course. So thank you for taking our time to do this. Oh, thank you, Vikram. Thanks for getting in contact again. It's a, it's a pleasure to be chatting. So I guess uh, I wanted to kick it off by by almost asking your question back to you. And I have to <laughs> I think you 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 gave everybody a lot of food for thought when you when you ask these questions that um, we don't need things to be ancient for them to be relevant. Now, mm. if I bring that question specifically to the broader genre of yoga, yoga as you, I, and anybody else who tunes into this conversation, how important do you think that concept of it being ancient is or how relevant is it? It's an excellent question. And uh, as I think I wrote at the start of my book, uh, my, my exploration of yoga history and philosophy began as, uh, you know, an asana practitioner asking questions and saying, you know, where does all of this come from? And uh, 
what can I read to find out more about it? And I started out in the Iyengar yoga world in the UK and people said, read Mr. Iyengar's books. And I found them a bit difficult. And then someone said, well, why don't you read the Yoga Sutra? So I opened the Yoga Sutra and I said, where's all the postures? <laughs> and uh, it, it just didn't, didn't relate to what I was doing. And uh, I had this very fond idea that people in caves several thousand years ago had been going through the same sort of sequences as we were practicing. And I couldn't find, you know, any evidence of that at all. The more that I studied, the more that I read. And, and I found that really disappointing at first. And I think that's the experience that a lot of people have when scholars start to question some of the stories that teachers have told about the history of yoga. We want it to be old, I think, because we want to believe it stood the test of time, um, that it is actually you know, a timeless thing. And I think that's where confusion comes in, because Yoga has changed in terms of what people do enormously over the centuries, and we can see that from all of the texts. But there does seem to be a consistency in the description of a state that is identified as yoga, um, which, which all of these different methods point towards. And that is the thing that stands outside of time, because it stands outside of a conventional mode of, of you know, seeing and being. And uh, that's what sets people free. Um, so I think that's an enormous confusion that that is right there at the start. And you know, if we if we were more interested in the timelessness of being and uh, able to access that, there'd be less concern with these questions about you know whether things are old or not. So I think at first it's you know wanting to have faith in something that is is you know, so old that no questions need asking about it. Um, and also it's because the teachers tell us these stories. And uh, if we can't trust the stories, then it starts to open other unconscious questions. So it feels like the rug's being pulled out from underneath us a little bit, I think. And I guess the thing that I've become more comfortable with over the last you know, 15, 20 years or so thinking this through um, has been the idea that you know, we all have to find our own place to stand anyway, because we can't rewind the clock to, to whenever it may be that we'd love to imagine that our practice came from. Practice is here and now, and we have to find a way to connect in this moment to something timeless, but also to make sense of what we're doing as a practice and to find authenticity for ourselves and to find a way of ensuring that we do keep some connection to tradition, even if yeah, some things have changed a great deal since the time of the text that we're trying to refer back to. Right. That's no, that's I completely agree to that. So the other thing that you know that came up as you were saying is if we look back at history, and you're an excellent person to ask that question to, yoga has always evolved mm -hmm. from primarily being a meditative practice where give up the body to you can find it in the body to let's to let's see what else can we do with the body and then the postural yoga so it's always been in a state of growth evolution and correct me if i'm wrong would you say that over time and i i love when you say this we do not know how much we do not know you said that a few mm -hmm. times in the course and and i think that's a that's a great place to keep somewhere in the back of our mind right because text temple art scriptures Paintings can only tell us that much. None of us have a lived experience of being in that time no. and can speak with complete authority as to what was going on. So having said that, would you say that this evolution that we have seen in the field of yoga, has that happened as a result of changing times and subsequently the, the population and the audience that was practicing it? And is that 
more or less what we see in the modern postural yoga world? That's an excellent question. And, I, you know, I think even attempting to answer it, we have to acknowledge how much we don't know. Um, you know, it's very difficult to know much with any degree of certainty beyond our own lifetime. And uh, in order to, to come to any conclusions, we're reliant on you know, some form of historical evidence. And obviously these days, there's so much material that's stored. I don't know how anybody's ever going to be able to sift through that evidence. If we go back, you know, a thousand years or so, there's not much that survives. So it becomes a little bit easier. We've, we've, we've got to make educated guesses based on what, what's there. Um, but that means we don't know that much about society. Um, we only know what's recorded usually in, in textual form. And I think this is a place where yoga scholars could sometimes tread a little bit more lightly. And, uh, you know, I forget to say it as often as I should. that We don't know how much we don't know, because the whole field of, of scholarly study is, is about trying to find something that uh, there are always tentative hypotheses, but um, that, that, that can be stated in very strong terms, usually to overturn an understanding that has been you know, thought of as conventional wisdom that needs rethinking. So when scholars come in and do that, they like to speak very clearly, very directly, as if you know they've absolutely conclusively proven something. But it's only based on that you know, small amount of evidence. So, so that we we do always, I think, need to acknowledge that. Um, but coming to the specifics, um, no one really knows where the problem that yoga is designed to solve actually came from. Because if we go back to the earliest layer of recorded religion you know, that we really have access to from ancient India in the form of the Vedas, um, they're very interested in action and they're very interested in getting results from action. You know, the action being the sacrifice and uh, this reciprocal relationship with the divine realm in order to you know, preserve the necessary conditions for life on Earth. Uh, and you know, that's the opposite mentality to yoga of renunciation and you know concern about the accumulation of uh, of the effects of action on the mind and then the tendencies that get you know <laughs> ground into us so that we carry on acting into the next lifetime um but that idea we don't have you know a real clear sense of where it came from um it's probably not from the mainstream vedic culture it's probably from somewhere on the fringes or perhaps beyond um, and there are all these theories that uh because of an urbanization wave in india somewhere between two and a half and three thousand years ago um there were you know cities starting to develop people moving away from the village life where the ritual was was predominant um and having to think about things in a new way coming into contact with some of these renouncers who'd previously been off in the wilderness and that's where the popularity of you know, religions like buddhism um really takes hold um, and gives sort of an alternative power base in a way to, to people who were not the center of the universe in you know, the traditional Vedic sacrificial worldview. They were perhaps sponsoring the sacrifice, whereas they can now sponsor these renouncers and have a, you know, a very sort of revered space um, in, a, in, you know, in a new worldview. Um, but that's a big digression. I, I guess you know, that's one theory that scholars have about, you know, where renouncer religion becomes established. But we still don't know where the original idea came from of you know this problem of karma and the need to address it somehow. Um, so that's a mystery to start with. <laughs> and uh, as we move through yoga history, it's a bit of a mystery why people started to actually think, well, hang on, this attempt to let go of the body and just sit still isn't enough. Because... <laughs> There wasn't, as far as we can tell, what we see for sure in the 20th century, a big wave of householder practitioners looking for techniques that didn't require them to give up their lives. Um, 
And most of the, you know, the early physical yoga teachings are definitely still aimed at renouncers. So why the sudden you know, shift towards a more embodied practice? It's clearly influenced by the previous centuries of, of, of tantric, tantric teachings, which reappraise the body and see it as something that can be developed and harnessed and transformed rather than transcended and let go of, or even just seen as a, an obstacle that we have to ignore. And that leads back to the ancient tapasyas of <laughs> you know, really the, the body is the problem. Um, and uh, the, the way beyond it is, is to burn through it almost with 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 sheer intensity of stubbornness um instead there's a new idea that creeps in and again we don't really know why um and then with the popularization of hatha yoga to the point that it gets combined with all of the old ideas from you know the the uh, the puranas the epics the uh you know, the philosophy of patanjali so in the 17th 18th 19th century we move towards modern yoga by jumbling everything up again and uh, we don't really know why that was obviously yoga was becoming a little bit more popular but then it seems to become unpopular again certainly from the point of view of physical practice partly to do with western colonialists demonizing yogis because they also <laughs> engaged in in warfare um, and resisted uh, british occupation as well as you know, providing themselves for for hire to <laughs> to to fight um you know on on behalf of the colonial occupiers sometimes also and um, so it gets a bit pretty messy and we, we you know we can't really separate things out very clearly i think until we get to the 20th century that's the point at which we've got a lot more information um and we see absolutely unequivocally a shift in what's practiced and the framing of that practice um so why people are practicing and the shift is to do things with the body for the sake of physical well-being um and obviously there's also a mental and spiritual component to that but it's about being better equipped to live in the world um so it's definitely yoga for householders it's drop-in yoga almost um it's the asana based class format as the primary means of instruction and that isn't you know traceable back much beyond the 20th century and so a lot of things do seem to change there and it's to do i think again with the political situation so you've got the problem of colonial occupation of india the uh, problem of british uh, you know kind of enforcement of certain ways of doing things in terms of physical exercise in schools and the education system in english you know, and uh, an attempt to resist some of these things with the cultivation of an awareness of an indigenous technique of body cultivation um which can be used to harness physical strength which can also therefore strengthen the nation be a source of pride and you know combined with the resurgence of um i guess confidence in the hindu religion more broadly and um, that was shown by somebody like vivekananda coming to the united states and basically wowing everybody with his cutting edge description of what it meant to be you know at one with all things um you can do that through a body-based practice so suddenly yoga means union it's all about asanas you get together in groups you do it for a little bit and you know you're better equipped to get out there and get on with the you know, really sort of um social mundane task of political activism and um, all of that you know gets get, gets brought together um, and that leads to people drawing on all sorts of other sources i think um you know whether it's traditions of gymnastics whether it's wrestling whether it's uh, martial arts whether it's dance in search of you know other body-based techniques that can be combined with what's traditionally been presented as as asana 
which wasn't really a sequence strength and flexibility practice. It was much more, uh, uh, you know, like we would think of as kriyas. Uh, you know, body purification is preparation for the main goal of yoga, which is sit still and you know see beyond. Um, and suddenly it's not that way. And so there is a context for that, but we still can't say for sure that's the cause of it as well. So um, I think we're left with you know two things that are bewildering if we look at all of this history. We've got texts. We don't really know who wrote them and why. <laughs> we don't even really know if anybody used them, if they were anything more than you know encyclopedia archive material. And then we've got contexts and they show us lots of, you know, backstory, but we don't know how that necessarily influenced what's done or why. Um, we can only, again, make guesses. So it really is a mystery <laughs> if we look at the history of yoga and any attempt to try and tell a, a clear, coherent story about it is, is bound to be in some way wrong. <laughs> but it, I think, is all we can do to try and make sense of where we are. And uh, yeah, so long as we're acknowledging the fact that this is our, you know, our best best guess based on what we can see um, and that there's all sorts of things we can't see then I think that's okay it helps us to understand humans tell stories it, it's how we learn and uh, so I, th I think it's a legitimate exercise but obviously having written a book called the truth of yoga I'm sort of implying that I've got the truth and I really want to make clear to anybody who's listening or watching that it does say right at the beginning that there isn't one truth we don't even know what the truth is the problem is we, we just don't know um, and so actually that is the truth um, you know we have to find our own sense of meaning through engaging with yoga practice it's not meant to be an idea it's, it's, it's something to, to 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 try and realize for oneself no i think that's a fantastic point and um i think that for me itself was an exercise in some serious chitta vritti because as you were speaking i think about 10 questions fired in my mind all at the same <laughs> time so um let me let me try and rein it in a little bit. Yes. Let me start with the most recent one. So it's very interesting and it's a well-known fact, right? It's almost a part of yoga history, the way it's taught in YTTs and other places in textbooks that, um, you know, this, this uh, speech given by, by Vivek Swami Vivekananda, I believe 1836 mm. or somewhere in that, in that range. 1893 um, was the initial. In, in Chicago. Mm. It's a, it's a groundbreaking moment and considered as one of those big movements of the transmission of yoga to the West. And ironically, as, as you share in the course, and it's there in other places, he's coming from a place of more of a mind priority body discipline, where there is some body discipline, but not the hatha the way we know it, or not the way we know it now. And I've always wondered, because at that point, India is still under British rule. And for all practical purposes, although he's in Chicago, I know he comes back and goes back again. I wonder if there ever is almost like this political angle to, to dismiss or to come in alignment with what the practices in India are at that point of time. You know, there's no internet, no Instagram, no global sharing. So he's also, quote unquote, the ambassador of what yoga in this mysterious nation on the other side of the ocean looks like. So I've always wondered about that and never really had a chance to ask someone that, do you think, what do you think is your best guess, estimate of his version of yoga that he decides to take over and share with this large audience? And it's ironic, in about 25 years, the yoga that the West or the whole world will, will practice could not be more different, you know, from, from what he brought over. I almost think of, uh, you know, a picture of Vivekananda speaking and then a picture of uh, 
uh, Sri Iyengar in like a Bhuja Bindasana or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. And they are not too far apart. You know, one was yes, yoga in the West for a long time, and the other will become and keep evolving into what the West or the world sees as yoga. So would love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, it's a great question. And um, I have to acknowledge that anything I say is, is going to be a guess. But um, I think there are two strands that we can look at. One is, you know, the audience he's speaking to. And the thing that he did so skillfully was to tailor his message to the audience. Um, he was trying to really, I think, speak about Advaita Vedanta and the inclusivity of that perspective, that all potential ways of seeing could be incorporated within the understanding that all is one. Um, and so therefore, he could really talk about anything to anybody and fold it back into that perspective. Um, so he went to the West and he realized, of course, that there's already an understanding about yoga. It's quite limited, but um, it's based on the translation of already quite a few texts from Sanskrit into English and particularly the popularization of the Bhagavad Gita amongst uh, American transcendentalists who are basically the counterculturalists he's speaking to or certainly uh, those who've been influenced by their writings. Um, and it's a very similar message about you know, direct experience. And, uh, you know, almost knowing the oneness of Atman and Brahman is the way that uh, Ralph Wardo Emerson writes about the over soul. <laughs> it's, uh, so he's got this, 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 this kind of, um, I guess, immediate in if he speaks in that way. Um, and there isn't really an understanding of yoga as anything else. Henry David Thoreau claimed, you know, I am a yogi or, you know, on certain days I would fain practice the yoga, which basically meant he sat around <laughs> at Walden Pond um, imagining himself as a Brahmin by the Ganges. <laughs> Do you know what that meant? I have no idea. Um, but he certainly wasn't you know, making shapes with his body or even doing any pranayama. So um, there's a there's an audience of people who are hungry for some sort of idea of, of, of transformation. And I think, therefore, that's one thing that he emphasizes. And then I think we have to look at where he comes from. Um, Thanks for tuning in to this preview. Uh, to continue listening and to get access to all archived episodes along with other perks, visit ancientfutures.substack.com dot com